Our reading this morning can be found in the Bibles in your seats on page 971 from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to the end. Listen to the word of God. Treasures in heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or, will, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap, or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labour or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? O ye of little faith, so do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen. So welcome, welcome. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable to you. You are our rock, our redeemer, the Lord in whom we trust. Have your way here by your spirit, Father. We meet in Christ's name and we invite your spirit of God to have your way with us. May your kingdom come, Father. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We have, uh, we're doing a small series for those who it's first time here. We are doing a small series through the Lord's Prayer. You know that prayer, like for me, that if you didn't know it by heart and we, you were in a school assembly, a teacher may come up and whack you because you didn't know the Lord's Prayer. Or if you giggled at assembly, well, the old minister, a Lord minister as we call them, um, was, was leading the Lord's Prayer. If you giggled at all, again, a teacher would come along 
the, the chairs in wacky. So you had to know the Lord's Prayer. Many of our children don't know the Lord's Prayer. There's a good thing in that and there's a bad thing in that. The good thing is, isn't that a wonderful thing for our children to approach the Lord's Prayer afresh rather than it's something that they had to learn at school? Um, if they come at it afresh, and it's up to us to inspire them in that way. And for those of us who know the Lord's Prayer, the, the danger is that we just use it as some, we don't use it and pray from the heart because it is so familiar to us. So maybe that's one of the reasons why we're looking at it as a framework for prayer. Actually, the passage that Ian read to us kind of unpacks in bits, although I've got some more things I'd like to share, but unpacks in part the, the, the element of the Lord's Prayer, the clause in the Lord's Prayer that we're going to focus in on this morning, and that is your kingdom come and your will be done. Andrew, can you put that up? And then I will take charge. So that is what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to tell you a story, but before that, before that I'd like to ask to think about this, all of us, the young and the old, and Kira, to think about this. I caught, she was just yawning, so I caught her right at the right moment. <laughs> Could we live without computers? Yes. Hands up if you think yes. Keep your hands up. Oh, yeah. Okay, it's great. Hands down, please. Who has a computer? Hands up, please. Any um, phone, if your car or your TV is smart, then that's a computer. So hands up, please, if you have a... I, just, I would just like to see. I should have maybe done it the other way, who's not, but put your hands down. Put up your hand if you have, whether it be one of these or a bigger one, like Drew's got there, an iPad, or a laptop, or a computer, or a TV that is all singing, all dancing, or a car that parks all by itself, right? Count them up. Have you got, who has got six or more of these computerized things? Okay, hands up please, six or more. Wow, that is impressive. <laughs> no, individually. So I think there's maybe half a dozen people who have got more. I calculated myself, I have got um, five. Um, that I'm willing to admit. Who has got four? Three. Two. And who's got one and they've only got one and they're never ever going to have any more than one? <laughs> ah, well, whatever. Computers, who can live without them? It seems that they are everywhere. They're, they're in our house, they're in our car, they're in the coffee shop. Heck, you can go to a pub and order everything as you're sitting down at a computer. You don't have to, need to go to the bar anymore. So I've been told. Uh, and the library. <laughs> in fact, I don't go to a bank anymore. My, my computer is my bank. So we get pleasure from computers. We swear at computers. And we need computers. Actually, it's going to be increasingly difficult not to use a computer in the, the days ahead. But it's actually a recent thing, and here's a story. Just three generations ago, the chairman of IBM declared that there is a world market for only five computers. As recently as 1977, 
the president of Digital Equipment claimed that there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. The revolution was brought on to us in large part by Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computers. Steve Jobs was just 21 when he and Steve, forgive me if I get this pronunciation wrong, Wozniak invented the first Apple computer. Up until then, as Jeanette Smith will know, because she worked in computers, computers were huge things that were tubes and, and panels that filled whole, room, whole rooms. And then the two Steves came along and squeezed all of those tubes, all of those wires, all of those processors into a small box that was small enough to sit on a desk. Jobs and Wozniak offered their invention to Atari, but they weren't interested in the big bucks. By doing that, they just wanted to be given a salary so that they could go on and work at this newfangled technology. But Atari knocked them back. They offered it to uh, Hewlett-Packard, but Hewlett-Packard knocked them back. It seemed, therefore, that Jobs and Wozniak alone could see, it was only those two that could see the possibilities and the opportunities of computers. So Jobs uh, sold his Volkswagen, Wozniak sold his calculator, and with $1,300, they then started Apple Computers. And why it was Apple was because Jobs had a good summer working in a vineyard, and therefore that's why he called it Apple. And the rest is history. By all accounts, Steve Jobs was a visionary, and he, he was spurred on by that initial vision of building this computer and then building a successful computer company. But Jobs soon discovered that if his vision was to reach fruition, they needed greater management expertise. So Jobs approached John Scully. He was then president of Pepsi-Cola, or PepsiCo. There was absolutely no reason why Scully should leave such a, a well-paid uh, position in a company that was a world leader to go and work for a bunch of nerds who were into computers in what was really a fledgling industry. So not surprisingly, he, he turned Steve Jobs down and Steve Wozniak down. But the, the two Steves wouldn't take no for an answer. So they went back to Scully and invited him to come on board at this point in their whole vision. And again, Scully turned them down. But in a last-ditch effort, Jobs passionately presented his visionary ideas to Scully. And he asked them this question. And he, asked, he forced Scully to answer this question. And the question was this. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want a chance to change the world? And indeed, Jobs and Scully and Wozniak did change the world. This morning, I want to ask that question. Jesus asks that question. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want to change the world or some form of that question? Most of us spend our times, our lives, our energies, our focus, our attention on selling sugared water in one form and another. Going to work, 
accumulating possessions, and perhaps, just perhaps, finding peace with God, but only doing that in our spare time. But Jesus had, has a vision for changing the world. And it's a vision of kingdom, not just any kingdom, but it is a vision of the kingdom of God. And he calls us, those of us who have heard that initial call, been born of the Spirit, to see that rule and reign of Christ at the center of our lives. To make that the very reason for our existence. And as Ian read right at the very end, Jesus says this. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And it's from there I want to just focus our attention for the next moment or two. Why do we exist? Is it as Jesus asked at the beginning, right, um, right at the end of that, is it for all these things? Do you exist for all of these things that Jesus has just spoken about? And what are all of these things? Verse 19, Jesus says, treasures on earth. Do you exist for treasures in earth? Verse 24, Jesus in effect asks those who would listen, do you exist for money, possessions? Verse 25, do you exist for the things that you can eat, for the things that you can drink, for your body, for the things that you wear? By the grace of God, as followers of Jesus Christ, we answer no. We do not exist primarily for those things. They are not our heart. We do not exist for these things. To exist for these things would actually, if the truth be told, be where we serve our needs and our desires. In other words, we are at the center of our universe, much like Adam and Eve desired to be at the center of their universe. Those who went to build the Tower of Babel desired for them to be great, their name to be great, in other words, so that they would be at the center of their universe. Jesus says in verse 32 in this short passage that Ian wrote, the pagans run after these things. I'll say that again because it's a, it's a, a strong emphasis that Jesus puts here. After naming all of these things that we all own, that we all desire, that, that are part of our everyday lives, Jesus says, guys, don't go for that because the pagans run after such things. So the question has to be, are we pagans? An old-fashioned word, put whatever substitute you would in there, but are we pagans and what we exist for? Surely we understand and we live in the reality 
of verse 24, where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Surely we are living in the existence where we serve God. That is our priority. And so somehow what it says in verse 20, we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in. Surely our coming and our going the thing that gets us up in the morning, the way in which we parent our family, the way in which we organize, structure our team, and how we even tr treat those who we know have got a grudge against us and maybe hate us. Surely we are living in a way that is honoring to God, serving God, and we're storing whatever that is up in heaven. I love that in one of the songs, it was the first song where it spoke about we will cast our crowns before the king. So even in that glory when we see Jesus, the things that we've stored up there, whether it be in the shape of a crown, we'll lay before Jesus because it's him that's done it all. And we are just so in awe and worship. Surely that's the reality that we in, enter into. Because we know that we come naked into this world and we leave naked from this world. As I've heard people say who go out and buy a nice, fancy car, may as well spend it, can't take it away, yeah? <laughs> do you know what I mean? So do not, and I'll, the words of Jesus, do not run after these things, but prioritize God and his ways. That is a call to us. And we say that knowing that he's the good, good father. Not a good father, the good father. He knows the hairs on our heads. He knows what we need and he invites us. Come ask me. Seek me and find me. Ask me and you will not be disappointed. Taste and see that the Lord is good to those who love him. Paul describes us, the apostle Paul, describes us in Philippians 3 and verse 20 as citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus lives. Citizens of heaven, where Jesus lives. Listen, this might be the, one of the first times you've been in this church. We do not call God down like some voodoo thing. God is here by his, his spirit. But we enter into the presence of God. We can either enter in, we choose not to enter in. Because we believe that as kingdom people, where there is a people, there is a king. And for this time, this is sacred space. And as we leave, wherever we go, because we go with our king and we are his people, where we go actually is sacred place. So we pray in the Lord's Prayer. In verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? We pray that because it's an intimate prayer. We pray that because we have our king. And we pray that because Jesus is our treasure. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. I 
I'm desperate for five people to know Jesus. Just five. But five people in particular over the last, however it's been, two, three weeks since we called the church to pray, thy kingdom come. This morning I prayed for them and I'll continue to pray for them. Why? So that their life is nice and rosy and they walk with a bounce in their, their step. Not primarily, just because I've tasted and seen that God is good. Age 15, out of nowhere it seemed, the experience of, of this God's Holy Spirit convincing me that Jesus was alive. And then for the last 30-odd years, getting old, 30-odd years, of walking with the Lord and how He never gives up on me, ever. Patient, goodness, God is patient. God never says oops either. I desire my friends and my family and five people in particular to know that. And so, we've been saved. I've been saved from an old way of life, which is an old failed way. And by God's grace, part of this transforming life of the kingdom of God, I see it here. I see in other places, the church is not the kingdom, but it's a sign of the kingdom. Our relationships, especially when they're difficult, just seeing forgiveness and patience, long-suffering, forbearance, uh, reconciliation. I, I, I see it all there. Even when it doesn't happen right away, the hope that it will be. That's signs of the kingdom of God. That is the life and the reality that those of us who now ex have accepted Jesus as a Lord and Savior have stepped into that way of life. Just as when Jesus was hanging on the cross with all of his accusers and beaters and betrayers before him, his prayer was this, from the depth of who he was, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. And he calls us to that way of life. And it's not just for me. It's not just for you guys. It's for everyone. And it's to that I'll now turn. And I, I, I'm going to address this particularly to Pitlochry Baptist Church. Why do we exist? I believe that we exist to bring Jesus to the heart of our communities and to see his kingdom there. I'll let you look at that for a minute or two. Don't rush over it. And it's plainly obvious that we can only bring Jesus to our marriages, to our homes, our networks, our communities, or wherever it may be. We can only bring Jesus to those hearts if Jesus is already the king of our heart. May the king of my heart be the reason that I live. May the king of my heart be the reason that I live. We can only take Jesus and see the transforming power of the Spirit, the kingdom come, if we ourselves know that and have something to share. Jesus is our Savior and Lord. And also together we have to discern this. And I think we have done this discerning already. We as a church family believe in this. We've actually fought, um, put it down in a form of words, and we call it covenant promises. 
They're on the website. Took us years to come up with this. And here is, oh, I've done it right. Ah, there is it. We've articulated it in these words. And I'm going to read this. As a church family, we believe and we are committed to embrace the challenge of becoming a church family where each of our lives is being changed through prayer, healing, teaching, encouragement, and every other resource God makes available so that by God's grace, the power of the Holy Spirit and as Christ's disciples, we will become ever more Christ-like. It begins by acknowledging who Jesus is, by seeking forgiveness, by, by being full of the Spirit. And then there is a journey thereafter where increasingly we become like Christ and have something to offer. Even our brokenness to our communities or the places that we have a heart for. So we can only bring Jesus if Jesus is already here. And we can only see his kingdom come there whether that place be Pitlochry, whether it be Aberfeldy, and I just threw it, whether it be Dornoch, whether it be Leicester, or whether it be Lisbon, or whether it be New Zealand, whether it be Texas, where, whether it be God's country, Glasgow, <laughs> wherever it may be, we can only see his kingdom there if we, as kingdom people, first of all, pray for such things. That's why I continue to pray for these five people. Isaiah says this, for, the, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. And I'll stop there and there's lots more. So if we want to see God's kingdom come, and his will be done, but primarily his kingdom come, first of all, then we must pray. And it can only come about if we as kingdom people go there. We, we don't suffer from being a ghetto. We do not have tons and tons and tons of programs in our church. And I'm glad of that. And we're out there in the community, as someone says, ministering in the valleys. We are there. God calls us to those places as a church family. And this is how Isaiah took up such a call. In the year of, the, of that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated in the throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, um, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah was witnessing the glory of the Lord. Age 15, I experienced the glory of the Lord. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the glory, eh, the King, the Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. 
Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And there's lots that could be unpacked in that. But Isaiah, having experienced uh, a, a vision of the Lord that undoubtedly transformed his life or was in the process of transforming his life, responded to the call saying, I'll go and tell people. I want to be a fisher of men, as Jesus put it. So by going, we don't necessarily expect people to come to us. By going there, we know where we're meant to be. We've discerned that. We just don't do scattergun. And by going there, we're partners with the Holy Spirit and seeing His kingdom come there. And together, we have discerned that this is important for us. Discipleship. God transforms us. But also, this We've covenanted together as a church family. We've formulated this together. We believe this as a wider community. We embrace the challenge of becoming a church family that will impact our whole community with God's blessings and his values. His kingdom come and will be done. At the same time, to be a body of people that reaches out, where people know that they are part of something bigger, i.e. God's plans and purposes for Perthshire, Scotland and the world, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As a church community, we believe in this. I'm simply reminding us of that as we read, your kingdom come. And our communities, in the heart of our communities, and the places where people are. How will we succeed in bringing Jesus to the heart of our communities and seeing his kingdom come? I want to read out to you three other things that I think are fundamental for us as a church family. Here we are. How? First one is this. A covenant value. We need to remind ourselves of this and commit to this as the how to bring God's kingdom. We embrace the challenge of becoming a church family where people of all walks of life will come to feel at home. A community where each of us, singly and together, makes space in our lives for others. Jesus called to and welcomed each one of us to follow him, and so we seek to extend that welcome to anyone and everyone. Furthermore, we've committed and see this is important for us as a church family, to be authentic we embrace the challenge of becoming a church family where as people we are free to be vulnerable without fear of rejection. Recognizing that for us, the healthiest place to be is our network of small groups. Are you part of one? Where personal responsibilities and accountability are part of relationships within the larger church gathering. Please answer the call to this one. We need each other. We do not need to fall through the gaps. We need each other in small as well as large. And places where people can come and be invited and feel at home, especially if they don't carry out the norms of what you do in church. And finally, I think this is what we should do. Continue to be a gospel church. 
We embrace the challenge of becoming a church family committed to serving and ministering the good news of Jesus Christ through intentional evangelism, missional living, and love, gratitude, and praise to God's glory and for the joy and wholeness of all people. So we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How are we going to do it? How are we going to be salt and light in Pitlochry and Kinlachranach and Aberfeldy, etc., etc., Killycrankie? We know that we've got a welcome and we embrace people and let the Holy Spirit transform them, not our rules and regulations. And authentic, from the pulpit to the lead worship leader to a small group leaders to the person that greets you, to the person that phones you up and says you want to go for a coffee, authentic relationships of trust and accountability. And that we're a gospel church. We're not a cultural church. I will stand in this lectern. I was going to say pulpit. I will stand at this lectern and preach Jesus until he calls me away or you guys collectively say we no longer preach Christ. His death and resurrection for the atonement of our sins and that he will return again when the Father deems the time is right. I will continue to preach Christ. Not Allah, not Buddha, and not that Jesus is my buddy. He's the sovereign Lord, the great I am. I don't know what I had there. I want to tell a story. I'm going to do this for five minutes, and I'm going to try and do my last bit quickly. Because you may think this is all pie in the sky. It's all very nice in its words. But our culture is changing at a rapid rate. And some very basic things that we believe are becoming incredibly unpopular. On the 28th of August 1963, a Baptist pastor stood in the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., ready to deliver a speech. A crowd of more than 200,000 people stretched out in front of him. I can only imagine he was filled with both excitement and fear. And he began delivering the speech he had prepared. But midway through, he put his notes aside and spoke from the very depth of his soul. There in the open air in the steps of Lincoln Memorial, Dr. Martin Luther King gave what many regard as the greatest sermon of the 20th century. He says, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. And I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. 
I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, it's little Little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. And I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. We've got to remember how audacious King's speech was. For it, it seemed an impossible dream, and in many ways it's still a dream today in part. It was a dream forged in a country where blacks and whites were segregated by custom and by law, and where the rivers of division ran so deep that it seemed foolish to suggest that they could be overcome. But for that Baptist pastor standing at the Lincoln Memorial in front of 200,000 people, it was a possible dream because it was God's dream. King was convinced that God dreamt of a world where the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners would sit down together at the table of brotherhood and then that the civil rights movement, the spirit of God, would bring some of that into being. So I ask us today, what are we dreaming of when we pray? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Scott McKnight, who's an author, theologian, lists these things. I'm going to... He basically says, for, the, to, for us to pray your kingdom come, there must be a king. Jesus must be king. There must be a rule. It's more than just the fact that the king rules, but in his ruling, he has redeemed his people. And in his ruling, he lords it over us. And I use those words intentionally. For there to be a kingdom, there must be a people, a called out people. Not just people that show up to church every now and then and go through the motions, but those, as Jesus says to Nicodemus, who have been born of the Spirit, who are made alive by the Spirit, who know forgiveness of sins. For there to be a kingdom, the king's will, his law, as in the Old Testament it was Torah, or you could say in the New Testament, the Sermon of the Mount, the king's law must be adhered to. It must reign. And finally, there has to be a, a space, a sacred space, for the king's will to come about. And we know that he is the creator of all the universe. And one day, his rule will fill the whole of the universe. And he invites us now to be a part of that. So this is our dream when we request your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It encapsulates that vision to bring Jesus to the heart of our communities and to see his kingdom there. 
a king who rules through redemption with a redeemed people who have the will of God taught by Jesus in a sacred space where God's will is embodied. I'd like to read one last wee story as we finished here. Hattie May Watt, a six-year-old girl, lived near Grace Baptist Church in Philadelphia, USA. The Sunday school was very crowded. Russell H. Cornwell, the minister, told her that one day they would have buildings big enough to allow everyone to attend. And she says, I hope you will. It is so overcrowded, I am f- I'm afraid to go there alone. And he replied, when we get the money, we will construct one large enough to get all the children in. A vision, a dream. Two years later, in 1886, Hattie Mae died. After the funeral, Hattie's mother gave the minister a little bag they had found under their daughter's pillow containing 57 cents and change that she had saved up. Alongside it was a note in her, in her handwriting, and it said this, to help build bigger so that more children can go to Sunday school. The minister changed all the money into pennies and offered each one for sale. He received from that sale $250 and 54 of the cents were given back. The $250 was itself changed into pennies and sold by the newly formed Watty Might Society. What is her name again? Hattie, yeah, Hattie May. And in this way, her 57 cents on, kept on multiplying. 26 years later, in a talk entitled The History of the 57 Cents, the minister explained the results of a 57 cent donation. A church with a membership of over 5,600 people, a hospital where tens of thousands of people had been treated, 80,000 young people going through university, 2,000 people going out to preach the gospel. All this happened because Hattie Mae Watt invested her 57 cents. Shall we pray together? Use us, Father, to bring Jesus to the heart of our communities and to see his kingdom there. Use our hands and our feet. Use our mouth. Pray your blessing and Josiah and your blessing in Cain that they would know what you're leading them into and they would follow your call. And I pray a blessing in Jesse also that she would bring your kingdom and, and dream big dreams for Balhousie. Use us, Father, and may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I invite anyone, for whatever reason, if you are stirred by your spirit, and I don't know what Douglas is going to sing, but if you are stirred by your spirit to respond to that call, either to say, I'm going to trust Jesus, and afterwards I'm going to speak to someone about it. I'm going to trust him that he knows the way. He is the truth, and he is the only life. So I invite anyone who would respond to that call of God 
to follow Jesus, to stand in. Anyone also who would want to respond to the call of using their 57 cents and who would dream big dreams and who would pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, to stand with me for your own reasons as you respond to the, the, the prompting of the Holy Spirit as we, as we sing. So please stand just now. Dear Father, you know the heart of everyone here, whether standing or remaining in their seat, and you know what's going through their mind and their heart. And I pray, Lord, that however they've committed, whatever they've committed at this moment in time, that, Father, you would be gracious and merciful to them, that, Father, that you would lead them, you would go before them, that they would know, they would discern where you're going and that they would follow. If it's anyone who is... Um, responded to the call of knowing forgiveness of sins and the old way of life to step into the new. I pray, Lord God, your blessing on them. You fill them afresh with your spirit. And I pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.